0: This episode is brought to you by IVP. Too often, people affected
1: by disabilities are made to feel unwelcome in the church. Pastor Lamar Hardwick is himself on the autism spectrum, and in his book Disability and the Church, he addresses the church's responsibility to the disabled community. He also affirms God's image in all people, And offers practical steps to build truly inclusive faith communities. As a listener of this podcast, you can receive this book for 25% off when you use the promo code IVPOD25. That's IVPOD25 at IVpress.com
0: this is ivp
1: a healthy vision of work is one that recognizes the glory that it is that we get to collaborate with god and with one another to do good work and yet the freedom of knowing that my life and my livelihood doesn't even depend on that that god provides what i need and he provides a sense of identity and purpose outside of what i can accomplish
0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Digital Examine Podcast. I'm Jay, and uh, really glad you're joining us for today's conversation. Um, chances are, if you're anything like me, you listen to podcasts like this one in between the busyness of your day. Maybe you're listening right now driving to or from work. Maybe you're listening um, while the little kiddo is down for their afternoon nap. Maybe you've got the AirPods on while you're doing the dishes or going for a run um, or a, a bike ride, whatever it might be. Uh, typically, I'm listening to podcasts while I am multitasking and getting something else done. And this is fine. It's a great thing. Um, we all want to be efficient and effective, manage our time well, and maximize time, especially if we're sitting in traffic driving from one place to another or doing the dishes or whatever it might be. Uh, but I do wonder sometimes if in the mad rush for efficiency, we are losing sense of vocation what it means to not just do and accomplish um but to find real meaning and joy and significance and a sense of purpose and groundedness in the work that we do by work i'm not just talking about the nine to five i'm not just talking about what we do to pay the bills i mean the invitation to see all of life as a partnership between god the creator of a good world and us God's agents in the world to bring that goodness to bear amid strife which is a term used by our guest today, Dr. Carmen Imes. Um, Carmen is the associate professor of Old Testament at Biola University, and she's written a couple of books in recent years that have been paradigm-shifting for me. Uh, the most recent one called um, Being God's Image, Why Creation Still Matters, and her first book, Bearing God's Image, Why Sinai Still Matters. Um, Dr. Carmen Iams is a brilliant theologian who has this wonderful, wonderful gift, uh, to be able to bring high academia and rich, robust biblical theology down to the ground level in such a way that, um, not only does it inform us, but it truly inspires us. At least it has for me. And it's changed so much of the way that I see, um, God and what he's up to in the world and what he is calling me to as, um, Uh, his son. And so today, uh, Carmen and I talk about what it means to be human, what Sabbath rest actually is, and why it matters so much today. Uh, And I think you're going to be thoroughly encouraged and challenged by our conversation. So here is my talk with Dr. Carmen Imes. Dr. Carmen Imes, thank you so much for joining us on the Digital Examine Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me, Jay. It's great to meet you.
0: Yeah. Um, I was telling you before we hit record, uh, the last several years, I've, um, so thoroughly enjoyed your work. Mm-hmm. Your books have been really paradigm shifting for me. Mm-hmm. They've been, um, really helpful as an extension of, of that. You know, they've been really helpful to our people and our church. And uh, you have That's this cool. real gift of bringing, high level academic thinking down to the ground mm-hmm. where people like me and my friends can understand it and conceptualize it, but also allow it to do its work, which is to shift um the way we think about what it means in many ways, as I read your work, it, it shifts what it, what what I think I mean when I say that I'm a human being, hmm. wow. you know, which is like the existential question. Yeah. So I want to start there and I know it's a big question, But um, what does it mean to be human? And and specifically, when the Bible tells us that humans are made in God's image, uh, what does that mean? And and why does that matter?
1: Yeah, this is the $60,000 question, of course. And I would say that part of the problem with the history of interpretation is that people have just used their imagination to think of what are all the ways that humans are different than animals. And we'll just tally up all those things. And then that's what it means to be the image of God. And instead of looking really carefully and closely at the biblical text and say, what does it actually say? What words does it use? And what do these words mean in in their ancient context? And when I stopped to do that, I was surprised to see that many um, many of the assumptions that people have had about what it means to be the image of God. Are actually nowhere in the text. Um, it it's often been talked about as a uh, in in rational terms that we are human because we're rational beings, or we're self conscious, or we're relational, or we are uh, moral. We have a sense of conscience, and the text does not say any of these things. Although these things are all true of us, so I think when we go back to Genesis and just slow down and look at the language used we find out that to be human is to have a human body, which seems like a really simple thing to say, but to be embodied in a human body qualifies us as God's image. The word image in Hebrew is tselem, and at selam is very concrete. It's a three-dimensional object, a statue, an idol, and God doesn't want to be God God doesn't want us to make idols of him to worship because he's already placed humans in our bodies as the three-dimensional representatives of his presence on earth. So to be human is to be a three-dimensional representative of God on, on earth. And the vocation, the implication that flows from that is that we are to rule over creation on God's behalf. It's simultaneously, to be the image of God is simultaneously exalting and sort of lowering our status. We're exalted above the animals. We have been given this special dignity and value that cannot be taken away from us. And yet we are not God. We are the image of God. We're not God. And so there's a sort of cap on our human value or our our authority. Everything we have is derived and given by God And so it kind of keeps us in our place and it's an exalted place, but it's not ruler of the universe. And, and because we're not the ruler of the universe, but we work for the ruler of the universe, uh, that tells us something about how we're to orient our work and orient our, our lives.
0: Yeah, that, that, again, this is the work you do paradigm shifts, because um, you're exactly right. I've heard that and I've thought that. And sadly, I've taught that in past mm-hmm. years. Um, I probably you know, have to. this idea that, yeah, that as image bearers, what that means is all of those things, right? That we are rational creatures that we um it and in a strange way, it is it does injustice to. um A sort of valuing of the reality that we are bodies Mm -hmm. to be human is to have a particular body Mm -hmm. to be embodied Mm -hmm. and then to live and move and be in the world within those bodies we see everything that's happening in culture at large because of a devaluing of the body yes even though there's this sort of upward trajectory swing in terms of pursuing pleasure Mm -hmm. um it's actually this incredible devaluing of the human body and you connected that to work and to vocation and that's sort of where i want to take the conversation you've got this beautiful line in being god's image you say that god has given us good work to do and that work brings satisfaction but ultimately our value is not tied to what we can produce our work does not define us and it should not consume us. I like that juxtaposition is so helpful. It doesn't define us and it shouldn't consume us. And so Sabbath rhythms remind us to rest in God's provision and guard against obsession with work. It's interesting, the beginning part of that, you know, that God's given us good work to do. It should bring satisfaction. Um, when people talk about work today, I think... um, You know, we may not use these words, but I think people connect it uh, to labor and toil, not necessarily something good or satisfying. And at the same time, there's this strange paradox in that we see it as labor and toil, and yet so much of our identity is also intrinsically tied. Um, But give us a sense for God's original vision for work and for vocation, and how obsession in particular with work can undermine this, this vision. Sure.
1: Yeah. I felt like as I was writing about work, I was trying to straddle, um, this very steep trail with, with large drops, large cliffs on both sides and trying not to fall off in either side because our work does matter, but it doesn't make us matter. So God gives us work to do And the work he gives us to do is genuinely meaningful. He actually invites Adam and Eve into the process of of cultivating creation, of uh, subduing any intruders to the garden. So there's a meaningful uh, caregiving role, cultivating role. Adam names the animals. So their work is creative. It's uh, providing for the flourishing of the created world. And it's, it's meaningful. God is actually passing the baton. He plants the garden and then he passes the baton to humans to maintain the garden. And so there's, there's a genuine sense of continuity between God's work and our work. And yet, if we, if we look to that vocation or that job that God's given us to do as the source of our value, then we've fallen off the other side. Uh, because we are already, by virtue of being God's image, we are already intrinsically valuable. So we're not working in order to prove our value. There's nothing that we have to produce or accomplish to somehow establish ourselves as worthy of honor or dignity. That That is just given to us by God. So the work is meaningful, but it's not our source of ultimate identity. And that's a hard balance. As I was writing, I was thinking, okay, some of my readers are going to lean on one side. They're going to be finding so much of their value in their work and maybe pouring themselves into it with a kind of ambition and a kind of drive that's unhealthy. But I don't want to say, you know, step back from that. Nobody do anything like your value doesn't depend on your work because God does invite us into work. And so so to those on the other side of the spectrum i wanted to say get busy the, the god's given you a job to do in your corner of the world and and it's a meaningful task i think as i as i look through the history of the world i i see lots of examples where people are slaving away to benefit someone else and i think that's maybe where we get this idea of work or toil as onerous this is not life-giving because it doesn't matter how much energy I put in. I never have a sense of satisfaction or accomplishment because I never get to enjoy the fruits of my labor. It's all for someone else. So so this is not that kind of work. This is the kind of work where God, God gives them a garden and asks them to cultivate it and says, eat from any of these trees except that one. Like they get to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And so I think hmm. a healthy vision of work is one that recognizes the the glory that it is that we get to to do, get to collaborate with God and with one another to do good work. And yet the freedom of knowing that my life and my livelihood doesn't even depend on that, that God provides what I need and he provides a sense of identity and and purpose outside of what I can accomplish.
0: Wherever you're listening from, whatever you're doing right now, as long as it's safe, I want to invite you to take a few deep breaths and consider a couple of things that Carmen just shared with us. First, I love what she said, that our work does matter, but it does not make us matter. Take a moment and think about that. In what ways have you devalued your work? Have you found yourself mired in um, the frustration of seeing uh, your waking moments as just labor and toil? And ask God, again, breathe deeply his presence now and ask him to help you see with new eyes that the work you do does in fact matter, that it matters so much. At the same time, ask yourself the question, How have you tied up, bound up your sense of identity to the work you do or the things you produce or the life you think you are cultivating? And ask God as he is present with you now in this moment to disentangle you from that lie that your identity is intrinsically tied to the work that you produce. So take a few moments, breathe deeply, Think about work and the fact that it does matter, but that it also does not make you matter.
1: What does it mean to be human? Now more than ever, this is a crucial question that
0: has an impact on so many issues we wrestle with on a daily basis. In her book, Being God's Image, author and scholar Carmen Imes explores the implications of being made in God's image and considers what
1: this means for our work, our gender relations, our care for creation, and our eternal destiny. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to find out how you can get a 25% discount on being God's image at ivypress.com.
0: Do you think that some of the misunderstanding with work in the modern Western world, in America in particular, is that? Work is synonymous with occupation. So as I'm listening to you paint the vision of of the biblical vision for work, what it doesn't sound like to me is the nine to five. What it Mm. sounds like to me is the whole of life. Yes. That we are all um, nine to five. I go to an office and I type on a computer and I do whatever, or mm-hmm. I go to a classroom and I teach some kids, or I watch the kids at home and mm-hmm. I go home whatever it might be the nine to five but then there is also the time spent with friends or raising children or leisurely sort of vacationing somewhere. the whole of life when you cast that vision, you know when you say to the other side to one side of the spectrum, "Hey, get to work," what I don't hear you saying is. Hey, get to your nine to five. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is in all of life, see life as a vo- vocational calling yeah. to partner with God, to garden and yes. to bring to bear the good potential of the earth. T- talk a little bit about that distinction sure. and what more specifically what you mean uh, in terms of yeah. work, at, you know, as a whole.
1: Yeah, I think I think the a biblical work ethic involves um, bringing order to every corner of the world that we inhabit. So whether we're being paid to do it or not, to keep our place tidy, to, uh, to, to be good stewards of what God has provided to us by not letting it, not letting things rot or mold or go into disrepair. But we're, we're to the degree that we're able, we're trying to, to maintain order and create a kind of environment in which others and ourselves can flourish and that goes beyond just the stuff that i own but it's also a shared there's a shared ownership of the world god made and a shared stewardship so that means if i see trash on the ground and i didn't put it there it's the world god gave me to to care for and so i pick up the trash even if i didn't throw it there because because that's part of my human vocation and so i i think yeah i think there there are all sorts of Good work that God gives us to do that are not at all attached to a paycheck, whether that involves caregiving for others or volunteering in your community, in your church community, in your in your city where you live, um, whether it involves just reaching out and being a friend to someone. Um, there's all sorts of ways of contributing to flourishing in the world, many of which are not uh, not paid work. Um, I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, my mom heard about a ministry that works in Africa, and uh, this ministry is called So Powerful S E W. And um, they noticed that there were lots of young girls who in Africa who, when they hit puberty, stopped going to school because there was no there was no way for them. They had no hygiene pro- products to to manage their periods at school, and so. So they would just drop out of school or they would just be out of school for one week out of every month. And you can imagine how much learning they would miss. And pretty soon they'd fall so behind that it felt impossible to catch up. And so they would just drop out altogether. And this, of course, contributes to early pregnancy rates. Um, The lack of education means lack of jobs down the road and lack of ability to provide for their families. And so there's a there's kind of a vicious cycle. And so this ministry is trying to provide reusable hygiene products for girls in Africa. And my mom and many of her friends are, have devoted all kinds of time to making purses for these girls to carry their products to school so that they have what they need. And, and she has, um, she's nearing by, by the end of this calendar year, she will have made personally 3,000 purses to keep 3,000 girls in school. In West Africa. And I'm just so proud of her. Nobody's paying her to do this. It's all volunteer. It's out of the goodness of her heart. And every every time she thinks about, okay, maybe I should do something else now. She thinks, oh, but one more girl could stay in school if I make one more purse. And so she's been just driven by this vision of educating young girls in Africa. And I'm just so proud of her. So inspired by her work.
0: It's a profound story. Um, you say in your book that the human project continues and it expands amid strife. Hmm. You talk about, you know, east of Eden when Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. You say that life east of Eden is is ruthless. Yeah. And I think most of us living today would agree. Mm-hmm. You know, we just in our own lives and in our communities, yep. but also we we scroll our news feeds and we see it left and right. And then we hear stories like the story you just mm-hmm. shared about your mother, you know, every time she thinks about doing something else, but one more girl, one more girl. Yeah. Um. It's clearly not because she's getting paid. Nope. She's not being paid. It's because she's experiencing some deep sense of, you know, meaning and purpose yep. and, and joy in in the midst of strife amid mm-hmm. strife. Like you said, these girls in these um, situations that are really challenging speak to those of us who. Um, are living maybe here in the modern world or in the postmodern world or the developed world, and maybe we're saying, Okay, man, I resonate with that. You know, mm-hmm. I want to spend my days giving energy to that, mm-hmm. you know, to mm-hmm. helping young girls go to school. Um, but talk about even more locally, sort of right here, just in our everyday experiences. Yeah. Um, how. How can we approach all of life as vocation in such a way mm-hmm. that we might experience that sort of meaning and purpose and joy yeah. in our work? Again, not just the nine to five, but all of life.
1: Yeah, you mentioned just how how complicated and discouraging our world is. There are wars raging in so many areas of the world right now and people dying. And it can be really discouraging and it can be discouraging just on an individual level in our families as we experience brokenness in our institutions or churches where things are not as they should be. And it can be very discouraging. I today is a particularly discouraging day for me as I look at things that are not right in the world. And, and just yesterday, a friend posted a quote on Facebook that I took a screenshot of and saved because I felt like it just spoke to that sense of discouragement. It's from an old rabbinic source um, called Pirkei Avot, uh, chapter 2, verse 21. And it says, you are not obligated to finish the work. Neither are you free to desist from it. And I love that because I, I from time to time, have a feeling of discouragement. Like, I can't solve this problem or I can't, I can't bring the world where I want it to go. But it's not all on me it's It's something that God has given to the human race as a whole we're collectively doing this work, so I personally and individually am not obligated to finish it um I may be working against st- structural or systemic injustice for a long time without seeing any fruit i'm but I'm not obligated to finish that work, but I'm also not allowed i'm not I'm not free to desist from it. I can't just set it aside and say because I don't get to cross the finish line I'm not going to contribute in this way. And and that I think was the encouragement I needed this week. Um you know we we in I in particular I teach my classes, I write my books, I do podcast interviews. Um I I speak at conferences, I do these things and no one thing is going to solve the world's problems, but every little thing that we do can contribute. It can it can contribute to someone's paradigm shift it can equip someone to uh more more energetically engage the work that's got that god has given them to do and so i'm not responsible to do all the things all i can do is be faithful with the time and energy god has given me and leave the results up to him and leave the results up to um collectively what we can accomplish
0: yeah it's a really good word I want to I want to talk about Sabbath and I want to talk about mm-hmm. rest. Um and as we as we do as I'm listening to you talk about the vision of vocation and work it strikes me and I want to get your take on this if if you would agree or how you would change this idea if If we don't have a robust theologically rich biblically sound vision for work for vocation, and instead we think of work really primarily as occupation, the paycheck, the nine to five labor, and toil. If that's how we think of work, it makes sense to me that then, on the weekends you know live for the weekend, the weekends really become about the pursuit. Of pleasure or numbing out, yep. which which is actually not at all the biblical vision for Sabbath. Nope. But to get to Sabbath rest, we have to then understand what work is, mm-hmm. what we're resting mm-hmm. from. And you've got this great line in the book. You say, we typically associate rest with being tired, but God is not taking a nap because everything, creating everything warm out. God's rest on the seventh day is similar to a king's rest on his throne, which really is not about, holy smokes, I'm so exhausted, let me just slouch on the throne. It's really about sitting and ruling and reigning in the beauty and the power of the kingdom that he has put together, formed and created and, and cultivated. Um, is Would you agree with that, that... that- A misunderstanding of work as labor, toil, the nine to five Mm. is what leads us Mm -hmm. primarily to thinking about Sabbath rest, air quotes, as just sort of, you know, meaningless leisure. Yeah. Yeah, Napping. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that.
1: Yeah. I think you're right. Um, I think that our deformed vision of work as an, as a means to getting us to the weekend and a means to fueling our entertainment. Calendar or a vacation calendar. Um, that it's such an empty view of work. There is there is intrinsic value in the work that you do, even if you don't personally love it. I'm I'm lucky enough to have a job that I love, and I regularly call the best job in the world. I get to read and learn and teach and think about ideas, and I, I love it. But even if you have a job that to you feels monotonous or um or not particularly life-giving you are by God's grace contributing to the flourishing of the society as a whole and so you can take uh, confidence in that there's there's a there can there can be satisfaction in something that contributes to the good of all even if it's not um, personally life-giving and I think It's so important for us to recognize that God's rest is not a rest because he's tired. Now, when I Sabbath, I do sometimes nap and I sit and read books or I go for a walk and it's in its leisure, but it's not leisure in the sense that like, oh, finally, I'm done with that awful thing I've been doing all week. And now I don't have to think about it anymore. It's actually a disciplined laying down of my vocation. To teach and write and learn, laying that down as a way of recognizing that the world does not depend on Carmen Ives doing her job. When when Carmen takes a day off, the world keeps spinning, and God keeps overseeing all of it and bringing good out of it all. And so it's a to me it's a discipline of surrender. It's a recognition that. The world doesn't depend on me and my well-being doesn't depend on me and that this is my life is not an endless quest for independence, but that I am part of a broader community that's interdependent and that I am dependent on God. And so that allows me to take a day away from my work um, because I can rest in God's provision on that day. So it's a it's a comp, it's a complicated picture. There's a lot being accomplished on a day of rest that um that isn't just, you know, like going to the ball game or watching the movie, you know, that and and we can do those things, but we have to recognize that the reason this is powerful is because I'm saying I'm not on the throne, God is.
0: Mm. Talk about that. What role does God as King and our awareness of him as King and talk about it practically. What role does that play in Sabbath, Mm. biblical Sabbath Mm -hmm. as it pertains to us today in the modern world? Let's say we do sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. What role does God's presence as King play in Mm. that Sabbath rest?
1: Yeah. You know, the first time we, read about humans keeping the Sabbath is in Exodus chapter 16, when the Israelites are in the wilderness, they've just come out of slavery in Egypt, and God is providing manna for them. And he provides manna six mornings a week. But on the seventh day, they wake up and there's no manna because he wants them to collect double on the sixth day. And so that they, he's actually, he's actually demonstrating in a very powerful way that he is not Pharaoh. That Pharaoh who worked them 24-7 is no longer their master, and their new master doesn't want them to work 24-7. He wants them to take time off, and they can rest in his provision on that seventh day because he's provided what they need to subsist on the seventh day by giving them extra the day ahead. And it's one really, really fun thing that happens in Exodus in, the, in Hebrew. When I think it's in chapter five, when Pharaoh is exacting labor from the Israelites, and then he refuses to give them straw to make their bricks, and he says they still have to do davar yom ba yomo, that is the daily quota. They still have to meet their daily quota, even though he's not providing what they need to 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 properly meet that quota. Well, God uses the same phrase in Exodus sixteen to describe his provision for the Israelites, devar, yomba, Yomo. He gives them manna day by day. He gives a quota of manna. so instead of exacting labor from them, he's providing food for them. it's the it's the exact opposite of Pharaoh, which shows us how God's economy is so different. And I think it's powerful when we when we rest in that provision and we recognize. I, I don't survive because of what I provide for myself. I survive because of what God provides for me in his, in his generosity. And I think in the modern world, this is getting harder and harder to do. Now there are people who are listening to this podcast who do work nine to five and have a weekend off, but I suspect there are many others who work night shift or evenings or weekends, like they're, there's a different kind of rhythm or there's students. And so, you know, there's kind of always homework to get done. And so in our modern world, it's the boundaries between work and rest have gotten very fuzzy. And we carry around these little devices that keep pinging at us when someone's trying to get our attention and ask us to do work. And I remember, I first remember the shift when, uh, when inter- internet uh, day trading was a thing like when the stock market first opened up for little guys at home to be like buying and selling stocks. And yeah. it was open on the weekend. I, I remember a shift because we had, we were, this was early in our marriage and we had invested a little bit of money in a couple of companies. And so then we could watch it all weekend long, what it was doing. Right. And instead of like everybody clocks off Friday afternoon and nothing happens with the stock market till Monday morning, um, all of a sudden, if you waited and if you unplugged and waited until Monday morning, you could lose a good deal of money because you weren't paying attention to it every minute and managing it. And that was the beginning of, I think, a trend where where email become became the, the major language of our uh, work world. And so emails come all weekend long to which you feel a need to respond And if you don't respond, then they're piled up. By the time you come in Monday morning, there's a whole pile and you feel behind. And so it's become even more difficult, I think, to clock out and truly have a rest. And Mm. my encouragement to everyone is to recognize that email is asynchronous. It will still be waiting for you on Monday morning or on Sunday morning or whenever your Sabbath is over and that the world remarkably will keep turning even without your constant attention to it. And that's, I think, an important lesson. I was, I was sick a couple months ago. I was sick on a Friday. I started getting sick on Thursday. I was like, I cannot be sick today. I have students to teach. I have work to do. So I just pushed through the whole day. Friday morning, I woke up and there was no pushing to be done. I was just sick. And I had to cancel everything for that day. And it's amazing, Jay. The whole world just kept going on as if nothing was wrong. And, yeah. you know, it's, it felt like what's going to fall apart if I don't show up and nothing did, nothing fell apart. Things got rescheduled or they didn't happen and it's all okay. And Sabbath is a a regular weekly reminder of that, that it all doesn't depend on me. God is on his throne and he's the one who's actually keeping this world turning.
0: Do you think, yeah, it's a profound thought. Do you think we've lost in dramatic fashion God's architecture for human flourishing. And what I mean by that, you mentioned the little devices in our back pockets that keep buzzing and pinging and keeping us awake at night, which, and this is a topic that comes up a lot on this podcast and a topic I've thought a lot about for many years now, you know, long before the smartphone, long before the internet, long before even the personal computer just with electricity things yeah. really started to change yes true for the overwhelming majority of human history and you see it in the opening lines of the scriptures in the way god architectures creation yeah. the beautiful dance mm-hmm. you know the balance between evening day and, and
1: night and evening yeah, and over morning. and
0: over right and when and the and sun goes down
1: you stop working because you can't see what you're doing yes. anymore
0: yep Yes. And then electricity allowed us to extend the work day, party long into the night. But now it's not even just electricity and light. It's that we have access to anything i can listen, order a pizza at 2 a.m on my phone totally, you know what i mean and totally. like get it at my door yep. what do you think that's doing as you think about it with your expertise as an academic when you think about god's architecture mm-hmm. for humans and the way he created us and the world yeah um, how is that sort of undoing something in us yeah do you it's, feel that? it's
1: rewiring us to be constantly on alert and constantly attentive to what's the next new thing that i need to know and what i'm seeing is chronic levels of anxiety in my students who never shut that down and who never go unplugged and have a day off and so i actually think one of the most powerful things we could do is just turn off our phones for a whole day um to set the computer aside and i i have friends who regularly make sabbath a no tech day and i think that is actually worth considering because there's something about notifications that drive our, that don't allow us to fully rest. We end up getting caught up in all of these controversies out in the world instead of resting. And I've often felt like, well, Sunday is the day that I have time for Facebook and I can check in with people and friends and stuff. But I've noticed that um, that it can have a, a negative effect on mental health just to not have that that rest. So one of, one of my own personal disciplines is to leave my phone at home when I go to church. So just, we walk to church, it's just a few blocks from our house. So we walk there. I I can be fully engaged and I'm not thinking, Oh, I want to check on X, Y, or Z. There's no, there's no temptation to sort of pull my attention somewhere else. And then, and then we have the beauty of shared attention on the ministry of the word and on whatever we're singing and, and on the liturgy, like to to put all of our attention in the same place at once is it is increasingly rare. You know, 50 years ago, the family would gather around the radio or gather around the television and all be watching or listening to the same thing. And increasingly, I think what's true in most homes is everybody's on their own device with earbuds doing their own thing. We don't have shared attention anymore and part of what it takes to flourish is for us to have shared experiences and shared a common ground we end up we end up with totally different perspectives on the world because we have different algorithms feeding us different perspectives and we're losing our common ground
0: yeah um i want to end with this uh this beautiful line in in bearing god's image you say that sabbath calls us to stop working like slaves and to start living like members of God's Royal family. And, you know, ceasing our labor, resting in God seems like a, a profoundly beautiful way to reorient ourselves mm-hmm. around our truest identity that we're, we're sons and daughters of the King. Yeah. So as we close for, for folks who are listening you know, can you expound on this idea of being members of God's royal family mm-hmm. a little bit, encourage our listeners, you know, many of them are probably listening to this while they're at their nine to five, or they're busy or doing driving, the dishes or-, or driving home, whatever <laughs> yep. it might be. So in the midst of the busyness, just encourage mm-hmm. people um, and maybe even give us some practical ways that we can lean into this reality mm-hmm. of our identity today.
1: It's so profound for us to recognize that our core identity is given to us by God and that it cannot be erased or lost or destroyed. And I think to recognize that we are members of God's royal family, that that's our birthright and that hasn't changed, even if we've walked away from God, even if we've screwed things up royally, (laughs) no pun intended, um... (laughs) That that all it takes is turning back and reorienting ourselves to God to to be rightly related to him so that we can begin experiencing the benefits of being part of his royal family. We have we can't lose our DNA Um, if we're sons and daughters of the king, then then that's true about us. Even if we've had a season of rebellion or a season of of walking away or a season being plagued and riddled by deep doubts. if we were to do a DNA test on you, we would find that you're a member of God's royal family. And so the, the world presents us with all kinds of incentives to to figure out who we are and to remake ourselves and to sort of create a persona or build a brand and discover our orientation in various spheres. And I think the Bible is so clear that our identity is a given that we there is no way for us to truly know ourselves and find out who we are and why we're here outside of knowing God and knowing what he says is true about us. And so I think of um I think of Moses. I Exodus is usually my go-to because I'm writing a commentary on Exodus. And in chapter 3 when God meets Moses at the burning bush, Moses is coming out of a season of great uh consternation. Okay, so he, he's born a Hebrew, adopted by the daughter of Pharaoh, grows up in the palace, presumably. He kind of has this awakening of his conscience about the treatment of the Hebrews in his adulthood, tries to do something about it, fails miserably, and has to hightail it out of town because now the Hebrews don't want him and the Egyptians don't want him. And so he runs across the desert to Midian, marries a Midianite, and tries to kind of disappear in the desert with a sheep. And God meets him at Sinai and says to him, I am the God of your father, which is such an interesting thing to say, because normally God says it in the plural, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says it to Moses in the singular, I am the God of your father. And if I'm Moses, I'm wondering, uh, could we clarify that a minute here? Which one? Like, where do I actually belong? Are we talking about my Hebrew father, my Egyptian father, my Midianite father in law? Like where, which, which God are you? And then he clarifies the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is telling Moses that even though he's been estranged from, from his fellow Hebrews for his whole life since weaning, that he still belongs in that family. And, and God commissions him at that moment to go back to Egypt and rescue the people. And Moses' question is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And God's response is not to list Moses' qualifications and say why he's ideal for the job. God's response to the question, who am I, is I will be with you. And that's really all that matters for Moses, and it's all that matters for us. The question of our identity is best answered in conjunction with a recognition of the God who made us and who's promised to be with us. The most important thing about us is that we belong to God.
0: Yeah. Makes me think of the the first movement, the first question and response of the Heidelberg Catechism, mm-hmm. right? What is mm-hmm. our only hope in life and death? And that I, I belong, say with body my kids, and soul to my Lord Jesus That's Christ. Right. Yeah, I'm not my yeah. own. Yeah. Um, we belong to God. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for that word. Yeah. Um yeah, Carmen, it's such a joy and a pleasure to talk to you. I, I cannot recommend your work enough. It's brilliant and it's so practically helpful and accessible. Um, people don't need to be intimidated by it, but you have a way of navigating us up mm-hmm. very, very steep theological mountains in a way that feels safe. And it's the thing I love so much about your work. So for people who are new to you, people who have not yet checked out some of your work, your books, um, you have a course with the Bible project, like so much stuff. So, um, where is there a place that people can go just to find uh, more of your work?
1: Sure. So, I do have a blog. It's carmenjoyimes.blogspot.com. My last name is spelled I M E S, and there are links there to other things that I've done. But you can find me on YouTube as well. I have a YouTube channel, and I release videos every Tuesday called Torah Tuesday, where I'm walking through the Book of Exodus. Um, and then on Amazon, my Amazon author page, you can find all my books. Um, I, the, the ones, the one that we've been talking about today is being God's image. Why creation still matters. The, the one that preceded that was bearing God's name. Why Sinai still matters. Uh, I wrote that one first out of my doctoral work and then decided, oh, there's stuff I need to say about the image of God too. And there's a third yeah. book in the works. It'll be a couple of years before we see that. Um, But I'm beginning work on becoming God's family, why the church still matters.
0: Oh, I love it. Can't wait. Dr. Carmen Imes, thank you again so much for your work and for your time and for speaking life into so many people today.
1: Absolutely. Thanks for the invitation.
0: Thank you guys so much for listening. I really hope that that conversation with Carmen Imes was encouraging to you, that it was convicting and challenging and inspiring. And most of all, I hope you uh, can take away from this conversation one practical way that you might live um, into the Sabbath rest that God is inviting you to and that you might experience what it means to be human in the way that he has called you to be, designed you to be, that your worth, your value, um, the fact that you matter isn't tied to the stuff you produce, but um, the reality that you are a son and a daughter belongs to the royal family of God and that you might contribute to the good of the world in Jesus' name from that reality. That you belong to God's family, and He's called you to bring about good in the world for His glory and for the good of all. The Digital Examine is a production of Inner Varsity Press. For more information on any IVP titles mentioned on this episode, visit IVpress.com and use code IVPod25. That's IVPOD25 for 25% off. Sound Engineering by Honest Podcasts. Our producers are Helen Lee, Travis Alberton, and Andrew Bronson. Our production assistants are Christine Policcio and Isis Tolson, and I'm your host, J.Y. Kim. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the IVP YouTube channel, and leave a rating and review to support the podcast.